electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Billionaires butting heads, Peter Thiel's pointed words about Warren Buffett, all because of Bitcoin. Enemy number one, the sociopathic grandpa from Omaha. Plus, Vladimir Putin pressing on Russia's invasion into Ukraine, building a new world order. New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. I don't think we fully grasp how much the world has changed in the last two months. We've gone from bad boy Putin to war criminal Putin. But first, more on Elon Musk. Did you know news of him taking a big stake in Twitter was only Monday? This has been a huge week for Elon Musk. We haven't stopped talking about him all week. Tweets, edit buttons, a board seat, and now the newest gigafactory at his day job. Welcome to Cyber Audio. The Wall Street Journal's Tim Higgins on Tesla's big night in Texas. If not for all of the news around Twitter earlier in the week, if we might be looking at this event a little bit more skeptical, not because it's not a huge achievement, but because uh, yet again, uh, Tesla is behind. It's Friday, April 8th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's Friday? That Friday. Friday. smoke. You can't say this, that. This could not have escaped you to no, this point didn't. in the morning. You can't say that. To, and I decided that I like the morning at work on Friday's best. It is. It's fun. Because, because after it's that. Because the most anticipation, the furthest away the from Friday. All, I mean, the minute it's 9.01, it's like Monday. Okay, I'm not there yet. Elon Musk dominating the headlines uh, this morning, along with maybe Peter Thiel. Uh, last night, he hosted a grand opening event for Tesla's new $1.1 billion factory in Texas. Uh, that's where all my exes are. That's why you hang your hat in Tennessee. The prototypes, uh, are, they require imagination, and, and they're not easy, but... Um, relative to production, prototypes are easy. Production is hard. And this building is the, the most advanced car factory that Earth has ever seen. Musk says uh, Tesla plans to make 500,000 Model Y vehicles in one year at the new Austin plant. We'll see. Meantime, the company aims to start production of its Cybertruck uh, next year. I want to see one of those out. Uh, I haven't seen one, I don't think, on the road. Have you seen one? No, I've just seen the one that they've shown Active, off. Yeah. 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 What's that, Not Andrew? seen one in the wild. Are there ones in the wild yet? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. There might be one. a prototype that you could uh, see, but it, it probably will. You know, we've seen video, and I, I think when you see one, as you say, in the wild, it, it will be uh, definitely an attention grabber, I think. And we'll see whether it's really successful uh, as a. I, I can't. It'd be so weird to see, you know, one out of every 
20 trucks would be one of those. It'd be, it'd be every time you see Look, it. It, it reminds me of when they rolled out the Hummer, honestly. Do you remember that was like a big deal at the time? It yep. looked so different. You had Arnold Schwarzenegger who was riding around with them, and it, it, it right. caught everybody's attention when it was on the roads. This is going to be a similar sort of. The PT Cruiser. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the funny looking little cars. Yeah, at the, that was, those the, were the, the timeless uh, Pacer and the Pontiac Aztec, too. Got some attention, but not, not necessarily. Quite the same, not, not the quite, didn't quite the Wal same. Didn't Walter level. White? Uh, Andrew had a uh, had a Pontiac Aztec. I remember. I remember. It was a Pontiac Aztec, right? Yes, that, Aztec. that's what I said. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which was kind of representative of of his sort of humdrum life before he got into something much more interesting, uh, obviously. Yeah. Much more interesting and lucrative. Yeah, and dangerous. Yes. All right. In other Elon Musk news today, Twitter plans to host its new investor and board member for a Q&A session with employees. The question and answer session is said to be a response to concerns among company employees about Musk joining the board. Hmm. Twitter shares this week. Um, yeah, investors have not shown much concern. And Twitter shares this week have been up sharply. They're down by about 1% today. But remember, on Monday, you saw a 27% jump. It was up by maybe 5% the day after that. So a very different week this week than last week when it comes to the stock price there. In the meantime, Elon Musk at the grand opening of Tesla's new Gigafactory in Texas last night. Phil Abo joins us right now with the highlights. Hey, Phil. Hey, Becky, it was vintage Elon Musk last night, right from the get-go. He drove out on stage in the very first Roadster that Tesla built. This was back in the days when it was a Lotus frame, and they basically put their battery pack Welcome. on it. Welcome to Cyber Audio. And when he drove out, what was he wearing? A big black cowboy hat. I wouldn't say Elon has gone full Texas, but he certainly has embraced the state. And he basically said to the crowd that was there, several thousand uh, invite-only attendees, that the deliveries, as they begin now at the Texas Gigafactory, this is going to be a plant that is building model-wise for sale in the eastern U.S. because there's more demand than supply right now. And in the words of Elon, this is the most advanced auto plant in the world. And it'll be busy, too. The capacity, 500,000 vehicles. Look at the size of this plant. It is huge. It is massive. And that capacity, 500,000. Look, they're not going to get there right away, but that's what they believe they can ultimately achieve in terms of annual production. It is expected to use the new 4680 battery cells. That's where the battery cells are actually part of the frame. They connect the front part of the vehicle with the back part of the vehicle. You basically have three giant pieces that come together. Tesla's annual sales will get a boost, not only from this Gigafactory, but also from the Gigafactory that has just opened in Berlin. The current estimate is for the company to deliver 1.47 million vehicles this year. And again, there is a huge, huge demand uh, for the Model Y and a five to six month wait by one estimate. Dan Ives out with a note this morning saying, look, you got to wait five to six months if you want a Model Y. This should cut down on that wait time. Don't forget, Tesla reports its Q1 earnings in a couple of weeks. You guys know the date, right? April 20th. Get it? 420? 420? <laughs> All right. That's pretty good. I like it. Uh, Phil, stick around. Joining us right now with even more on the event and everything else that Elon's been up to this week is Tim Higgins. He's Wall Street Journal reporter, a CNBC contributor, and author of Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the Century. And Tim, this opening um, was anything but your average factory opening. What kind of crowds turned out for this? Well, thousands and thousands more online watched it live. And I've been to several new plant openings. 
And they're never this exciting. They never get this kind of attention. And that ability, that capability to get so many eyeballs, so many people beyond just the media and investors to be looking at this is rather remarkable. And it kind of speaks to kind of the movement underway that Elon Musk has, has done since that roadster first came out. What about momentum? I, I mean, this has been a huge week for Elon Musk. We haven't stopped talking about him all week. And, and I don't think that's just a reflection of us. He has been front and center with everything he's done from Twitter and beyond. What does that mean just in terms of momentum building up to this? Yeah, absolutely. Elon Musk kind of believes in this idea of momentum, that uh, good uh, dis- good results build on good results, wins uh, beget wins. And this week is definitely all about momentum, right, with the surprise of Twitter and these sorts of things. Uh, there's just excitement around the company and around him. In fact, I think I wonder if when we looked at the, the cyber rodeo, if not for all of the news around Twitter earlier in the week, if we might be looking at this event a little bit more skeptical, uh, not because it's not a huge achievement, but because uh, yet again, uh, Tesla is behind uh, on some of its things. The Cybertruck now uh, pushed to next year. Uh, the semi, the Roadster sports car still delayed. He's talking last night about them coming next year, which would uh, you know please a lot of uh, customers who have waited many, many years for those vehicles. But execution continues to be uh, Tesla's challenge here. We, we, you know, as much as they have accomplished, they're still, a, you know, a very young company and they haven't quite figured out how to seamlessly bring out new product. Hey, Phil, let, let's talk about that. We had Ron Barron on yesterday. He's been a long term investor, started investing in Tesla back in 2014. I think his cost basis is something like two hundred and nineteen dollars, um, maybe even less than that, because he started buying way down lower. Um, He said he's gotten about 20 times his money back, and he thinks that there's going to be additional growth of at least four to five times his money from here. Um, But he's also willing to give them a pass on missing on any of these quarterly estimates. Again, he's a long-term investor. He he looks beyond that on what the future, future potential growth is. But what about other investors? Are they going to do the same when they come out with their earnings on on April 20th? If they're behind, which would not be a huge surprise given the shutdowns that we've seen in Shanghai, Will the street punish Tesla shares? Depends on how much they miss, if they miss, Becky. And I don't think people are expecting a miss on the most important and critical factors. One, auto gross margins. They were 29.2% last quarter. I haven't checked what the estimate is for the first quarter. But if they're relatively close to that, let's say it comes in a a half a percentage point um, below expectations. Are they going to get dinged for that? Probably not, just as they weren't dinged for the fact that the consensus for uh, deliveries in the first quarter was 317,000. They delivered 310,000. And I think that's what Ron Barron was talking about, which is, okay, they missed by a few thousand vehicles. Keep in mind that the Shanghai plant was shut down. So he's willing to give them a pass. Now, look, if they miss by a wide margin, different story completely. And it also depends on what are the factors that causes them to miss. Uh, Tim, we, we had seen so many doubters, short sellers, people who were just perma bears on this stock for a long time. Uh, they sound kind of silly now, um, in hindsight, looking at where the company's gone. But is there something that could tip this company to a point where they would have some valid points again or maybe not be so embarrassed to come up and say something? Or is it? I know it's a new company, but it's, it's not a new company in the way Rivian, some of these real new companies are out there. Tesla is, to me, the most established of any of these EV companies and probably has the best chance of, of continuing leadership. 
Well, right. I mean, the concerns that some of these short sellers had in the last few years, they, they were valid. What Tesla was trying to do was really unproven and, and hard to believe. And that's what's so remarkable about the turnaround that they had from 2018 nearly being in bankruptcy to what they are now. It, it's hard to believe that that could occur. It's, it's remarkable. And that success uh, gives them a, a road ahead. Uh, and I think uh, patience among a lot of investors. I think some investors would be more concerned if Elon wasn't out talking about the next big shiny bright thing. Uh, last night talking about a dedicated robot taxi, uh, talking about that humanoid robot that we saw, uh, you know, we've seen in the past with a man dressed or a person dressed in a suit dancing around represent what the future might be. You know, a lot of investors are seeing the valuation of Tesla beyond a car company. It's an energy company in their mind. It's going to be huge in robotics and those kinds of little nuggets of teasing. Uh, while you know it's hard to believe that some of this stuff's going to happen next year, like he's talking about, does kind of fuel uh, a lot of investors' enthusiasm for the future ahead and in, in the future in the long term sense beyond the quarter to quarter kind of march. Tim, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we appreciate it. And Phil, we will see you a little later today. Thank you. By the way, I have to correct myself. Earlier, I said that Ron Barron, that long-term Tesla investor, that his cost basis was $219. It was, but that was before the five-for-one yeah. stock split. So his cost basis is actually $40, which mm. is why it's wow. uh, seen about a 20-fold increase or so wow. just since he invested on that in 2014. Unbelievable. Yeah, there's a there's a track record for you and, it, and his explanation yesterday as to why he'd sold shares because it had gotten to be such a huge portion right. of the portfolio just because it's grown so much and people right. thought he was crazy for being so i mean it's still something it's like so 12.7% of his Probably, assets under management he's got to be prudent as a money manager too and that's yeah. part of being prudent not to be too concentrated in one stock yeah. right Next, on Squawk Pod, a different kind of energy, literally and figuratively, we're turning to the oil patch with New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. We're always going to be begging somebody to pump more or less because we cannot control the price. That's the fact. The global energy landscape and Putin's power right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. 
Oil prices are below their high point from last month as the world reacted to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. WTI crude is down 25% from its multi-year high of $130 a barrel in early March when the U.S. banned Russian energy imports. Now, sanctions on Russia have limited the global oil supply and put pressure on European allies who are dependent on oil and natural gas from inside Russia. Here in the U.S., the Biden administration plans to release 1 million barrels of oil a day from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in an effort to stop the high cost of the commodity from hitting consumers filling their gas tanks. And this week, oil company executives got grilled, at least publicly, over high gas prices. Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations hearing will now come to order. Today, Members of a House committee charging the industry is taking advantage of this global crisis to gouge consumers. Here's ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods. No single company sets the price of oil or gasoline. The market establishes the price based on available supply and the demand for that supply. And Democratic Congresswomen Kathy Castor of Florida and Kim Schreier of Washington. It's time for the big oil companies to to lower prices rather than pad your bottom line. It feels like gouging. It, It even feels like profiteering. But the heads of BP America and Chevron say they are not passing on pain to the consumer from higher prices. The price of oil, gasoline, and other refined products are driven by international markets. And we have no tolerance for price gouging. For a deeper look at oil on the world stage, we turned today to Tom Friedman, foreign affairs columnist at The New York Times and the author of The World is Flat. Here's Becky. Tom, thanks for joining us today. It's good to see you. Great to be with you, Becky. All right, so let's let's talk about this because um, I know it's really popular to, to bash the oil companies right now to say that they are the ones who are gouging consumers. And it, and it matters because so many consumers see the prices at the pump. They feel it immediately in their wallets and they're mad. They want somebody to blame for this. Is it the oil company CEO's fault? I don't think so, actually. I'm <laughs> I don't either. No huge fan. I don't, no huge fan of, uh, of, of oil uh, uh, as our main energy source. But the fact is... Um, uh, this industry has been through, um, you know, a, a decade of wild swings uh, in the price of oil. We are price takers. We are not price makers. Uh, there is a cartel out there called OPEC that is the price maker. And it's the price maker because uh, it, it has two large producers, OPEC plus Russia, that have a huge amount of spare uh, and cheap capacity um, so they can manipulate the price. And so if you actually look, we, we, we don't have a single company that can turn it on, on and off uh, like these countries do. So, so basically, uh, the American oil industry has been whipsawed um, uh, over the last decade. And a lot of people went bust, basically, um, because there was no stable, predictable price. And uh, right now, they and their shareholders want to take advantage of the high price, basically, um, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to pad their profits, obviously. But what we really need, Becky, would be an oil import tax that would basically set the the price of oil in America at a price that would be stable and predictable for American oil producers to to make a profit, to consistently drill something like in the $50, $60 range. Um, uh, And if it ever fell below that, you you tax it up. That's what we need to have a a stable supply of of a reasonable price. We're talking price controls. This was not what I expected to hear from you, Tom. Explain this theory. Why? Why? Because price controls—you you take me back to the '70s and you worry me a little bit. It's, with, with it's what not really price before. controls. It, it, it's saying that we're going to um, uh, we're going to have a stable, predictable price if you want to import oil in this country, import oil to this country that will ensure our producers 
um, uh, that if they want to pump oil, they're going to make a profit and not be whipsawed. But uh, they're not going to be able to charge over that either. I mean, I the, the setting of a floor, I, the whole thing yeah, I'm is about just a floor. so. I'm, I'm talking about a floor price. Okay. Uh, but that's going to, I don't see that flying in Washington because they're really mad right now that, that prices have gone up. I didn't see them complaining when prices went negative. Sure. Um, and, and, but unless, unless you have a stable, predictable price, we're going to go through, as we have been for how many years now, these kind of wild swings. And um, uh, these companies, that's now how many people went bust in the oil patch in the last 10 years? Right. I, I, I mean, this is, this is a big problem. I, I think the bigger problem may be these wild swings in policy that come out of Washington, depending on who's in charge for four years at a time or two years at a time, if you're watching the Senate or the House. These wild swings in terms of what we're promoting, what we're saying you should be doing. I, I mean, you have some of the very same uh, Democrats who w- are yelling at them, saying that they're gouging and that they are stealing from the consumer, who were the ones who were telling them less than a year ago in these same sort of hearings that, by the way, we don't want to see you drilling anymore. You're drilling too much. Why can't you be more like the Europeans who have said that they will only drill so much and only bring so much oil out? I mean, that's that to me is the bigger whipsaw, not the price changes, because these companies can weather it for the most part if they're looking at, at, at shifts. They know oil prices come up and they know they go down. But the idea of not being able to figure out which which way you're going to get slapped from from the regulators in Washington, from the policymakers, that's a bigger deal because if you're going to invest in these projects, it takes years and it takes billions of dollars. And nobody wants to put billions of dollars of capital at risk if you find out that you're going to be told you can't use any of it a year or two from now. Yeah, well, you know, you can get a stable, predictable price with policy and you can get it through uh, a floor price. But right now we don't have a stable, predictable price and we will we will never be able to pump enough oil to be to be price makers. That's never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about the war in Ukraine and how this has really highlighted all of this. I saw a video this morning that was put out by Ukraine talking, you know, it starts out very um, slow with these smiling people uh, putting, filling, up at their, their, at, filling up their tanks at the gas pump. And it says, you're not paying for this with euros or with rubles. You're not paying to fill up your pump, your pump. And then it takes some of the really graphic scenes from what's been happening in the war in Ukraine. Um, bodies, people with hands tied behind their backs and said, you're paying it paying for it with the lives of other Europeans just like you. And, and maybe that hammers home this point um, better than just about anything else. It's very graphic, but it's true. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, George W. Bush was the one who said we're, we're addicted to oil and we need to have a long-term plan with a transition from where we are to get off that addiction. Um, that's always what I believe. And that's what I've been pushing for, um, you know, for, for 20 years. So we, we keep forestalling that uh, plan. And so we end up Trump begging Russia and Saudi Arabia to pump less, and then Biden begging Trump and Saudi, well, begging, sorry, uh, Russia, not Russia, but begging Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, in effect, Iran, to pump more now. But the common denominator, Becky, is we're always going to be begging somebody to pump more or less because we cannot control uh, the price. That's, That's the fact. So let's get off it. Let's get on that transition to a different uh, source of energy. And we keep talking about it, but we're not doing it. And as a result, we're hostage to all these people. We're always begging somebody. It, it, it feels like it's one of those intractable problems where there's not going to be any agreement in, in Washington. There's a lot of problems that 
that seem like you should be able to reach some rational middle ground, whether that be immigration or something beyond, that would really be things that would help us, but that uh, for, for whatever reason, we just can't find a common middle ground uh, with any of these issues anymore. You know, you talk to the, I mean, look, if you listen to the to the green movement, and I consider myself a green, but I've always considered myself a mean green or a realistic green. You know, I mean, I am told, but I, I don't know this from experience, Becky, that if you jump off the top of a hundred story building for 99 floors, you can think you're flying. Okay. <laughs> so um, uh, it's the sudden stop at the end that tells you you're not. So if you decide we're going to go cold turkey right now off fossil fuels, you're jumping off a hundred story building. Eventually you'll hit the ground. And that's, we saw that in Germany now, which got rid of nuclear and is back on coal. On the other extreme though, you have people just saying pump, 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 and, and, and that will take care of it. That's also a fantasy. And we can't find a rational middle ground on this issue. Let's talk a little bit more about the war in Ukraine and, and what you think is going to happen. We have ramped up our sanctions to a point I don't think anybody thought was possible with the newest legislation yesterday, basically putting Russia in the same camp as North Korea, uh, real rogue regimes in Cuba. Um, it's very likely that the president will sign that legislation in terms of their, their trade abilities. Um, because only three members of Congress voted against this entire legislation package. Um, but it, it, is this enough? Ukraine at this point is asking for weapons, weapons and more weapons. Should we be arming them? Will the sanctions be enough? How, how should we be approaching this? So um, my boot, Becky, is that um, uh, if they want weapons, weapons and more weapons, we should give them to them. Um, uh, I, I believe the Ukrainians have, have mounted an incredibly courageous fight for their own independence. They're not asking for American men and women to die for their country. They're asking for the ability uh, to have the tools to defend themselves. And I think we should be giving them whatever they need. Uh, you know, basically, we're, we're at a stage now, Putin's plan A failed. Uh, uh, his, his army turned out to be incompetent and barbaric. Uh, so he's falling back on plan B. Plan B is to try to basically seize uh, these eastern provinces uh, of Ukraine and down to the south to Odessa and connect uh, with Crimea, and then be able to, on May 9th, when they have their great victory parade every year for their triumph over Nazism, to declare that he, he had some kind of victory. Uh, I think the most important thing we can do right now is help the Ukrainians to possibly actually defeat Putin's plan B, uh, to, to break the Russian army. Because if the Russian army in Ukraine were to break, um, boy, that would be really, really interesting, because then Putin is going to name the military as the scapegoat. You can bet he'll go after some generals. And then the generals may go after him. We, we can't oust Putin. Uh, the Russian street can't oust him. Uh, but the military or security people can. And I'm all for fostering um, uh, that kind of situation by defeating his military on the ground. That is the most important thing that can happen. If that happens, a lot of, a lot of better things will, will flow from Ukraine. Unfortunately, part B of his strategy is not just to um, you know, try to seize Eastern Ukraine, it's to create as many refugees as he can from Ukraine. That's why they rocketed a, a train station this morning. His hope is to flood every NATO country with Ukrainian refugees, so their leaders will eventually come to Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, and say, look, you gotta settle with this guy. We just can't take any more people. And we're kind of in a competition now, Beck, between that military component and, and his refugee plan, um, uh, and and our ability to squeeze him through economic sanctions. And in the next six weeks, you know, two months, we're going to see which side screams uncle. 
you know, that's a tight timeline, it, even shorter than the six weeks, two months. If you're talking May 9th, they want to do this for their military parade. Um, that's a month from now. And uh, it would take time to get weapons there, even if you could see this passed by Congress and signed off on by the president really quickly. Uh, a plan like this, is there support for it in Washington? What, what are you hearing? Yeah, I think there is. I mean, we they announced what I've lost track because there have been multiple packages, but something like 800 billion and in, in more uh, you know, Stinger missiles, anti-tank weapons. Um, and we have got the European countries, including the Eastern European countries that have a lot of Soviet era uh, equipment as well. They're pushing them in there. Um, you know, my sense is the Ukrainians are getting the, the weaponry they need or will be shortly. And they've done they've done just amazing on the ground. Um, uh, they, they've they basically defeated the Russian army. Um, and 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 Putin does not have many more troops to draw on, which is why he's pulling in Syrian and Chechen uh, mercenaries, basically. Um, I mean, this is a colossal disaster. A, a man who, you know, launched this war thinking that it was going to prove to the world, you know, um, uh, that Russia had to be taken seriously militarily. Obviously, they have nuclear weapons, and I'm not, you know, courting that at all, but it shows you his military was was a hollow shell. Tom, how do you think this ends? Because this week they started talking about the idea that this could potentially last years, not just weeks or months. Is, is that a realistic idea? Becky, I'm really, yeah, I'm really worried because um, I don't think we fully grasp how much the world has changed um, uh, in, in the last two months. You know, we got used to over the last 20 years dealing with what I would call bad boy Putin. Um, bad boy Putin. He was a bad boy. But we found ways to collaborate. He was a bad boy in Chechnya and Syria, uh, Georgia. But he never went all the way. He went up to the line, even in Crimea, and never went so far that we felt we had to respond at scale. And he never did anything super bad at scale. I mean, he involved himself in our elections, all of these things. But you know what I mean. And, and he would work with us on other things, the Iran deal. We, we've gone from bad boy Putin to war criminal Putin. Now, when, when, the, when the head of Russia is a war criminal, the, when the head, uh, when, when Russia becomes a pariah state, uh, Russia that, that spans 11 time zones, Russia that has more nuclear warheads than any country in the world, Russia that is the biggest oil exporter in the world, Russia, which is the biggest wheat and fertilizer exporter in the world. What kind of world are we living in? Sub, that's a very different world when Russia is a pariah state, not North Korea. And, and frankly, Becky, I, I don't know how this ends other than with the Russian people finding a way to, to remove Putin. Now, if they remove Putin, one of three things can happen. You can get someone worse. That's very possible. You can get chaos and dis, disintegration in, in, in Russia, and you can get someone better. Now, if you've got someone better, someone NBA league decent, you know, minimum, um, uh, as the leader of Russia, Becky, you have a different world. You have a whole different world. You can actually then go back and reimagine what George H.W. Bush first talked about, a Europe whole and free from, from, from Ireland to Vladivostok. But there are those other alternatives out there too, so be afraid. Um, but we're in, we're in completely uncharted waters. When you move from bad boy Putin to war criminal Putin, that's a different Russia. Yeah, I think the world is trying to process all of that right now. Tom, thank you for your time this morning and uh, your thoughts on all of this. Always, Beck. Thank you. Cheese will be next. 
Coming up on Squawk Pod, harsh words. Famed techie and investor Peter Thiel is calling out fellow billionaire Warren Buffett. No filter, no problem? For guys to be able to just talk without fear in this day and age, without fear of being judged or repercussions, I just, it's refreshing for me just to hear it. It's like, you go. Sociopathic grandpa. I don't like it. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up and Andrew, Hugh. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Um, it's nice to see everybody this morning. The FDIC now wants thousands of banks uh, planning to uh, have it over that it oversees to notify regulators about crypto activities in progress or planned. The regulator citing uh, the, the saying that what it says uh, that it wants systemic risks from certain crypto assets and activities to be monitored. This could be a big shift. So it's going to be pretty interesting to see. But uh, I think these next comments, I imagine everyone's going to have a comment about this. Uh, speaking of crypto, famed billionaire venture capitalist Peter Thiel sounding off on the critics of crypto or what he calls the enemies list. He told the Bitcoin conference in Miami that Warren Buffett tops his list of people trying to stop the cryptocurrency. And he didn't have so many nice words to say. Here are some of them. Enemy number one. I, I think he's sort of... Um, I, I think the sort of the, the sociopathic uh, grandpa from Omaha is, um, is um, you know, uh, is, is perhaps the most honest and the most direct in it. Um, and, um, and you have to sort of think of, it's, it's, it's of course, on some level, these people are always just talking their book. It's sort of, they have some sort of institutional bias. Uh, it's long, you know, a list of woke companies. It's, 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 it's somehow long this, um, this uh, fiat money system. And, um, and of course, um, if, the, if it was, if it, if the, you know, there's always a sense if you're a, if you're a money manager, you want to pretend that it's complicated to invest. And uh, if, if, if all you have to do is buy Bitcoin, you know, that's, that's, like, that's like ridiculous. All these people are out of business. You know, it's, uh, I mean, there's, there was a version of this also with gold. They never liked gold either, because if all you had to do was own gold, um, that's something everybody can do. Um, but uh, the, the, there is something, there's sort of an institutional bias, a, a um, sort of a um, center-left political bias. Teal also calling out J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon and BlackRock's Larry Fink. The investors argue, uh, argue that people need to push back against the crypto bashers to fight for Bitcoin to 10 times to 100 times from their current levels. Sociopathic grandpa, I... I I will tell you, I, I, I don't like it. I take, and by the way, talking to your book, he talks his book. 
And I've seen a lot of sociopathic things happen in the, in the, in the last couple decades that I, I would not ascribe to, to Warren Buffett, that I well, would ascribe to others, look, including people in that room. Everybody's talking their book on this, on all sides yep. of it. But it's also like it takes two sides to make a market. And I guess that's what you have here. I love what he said about ESG. I love Peter Thiel. Love what he said about ESG as well. And, and you know what, where I stand on Bitcoin. I, I'm not probably, I don't, know, I don't know if I'm a stacker, but I guess I'm a, how you say it, a hodler, hodler. or something? I guess I, I'm a hodler. Yeah. You're definitely uh, a hodler. And I did stack recently at 33 a little bit. Um, yeah, but I, I sold most, you know, what I had real early. I was at least three quarters out, now a little bit yeah. uh, back. But I totally, I mean, the ESG, you know, for guys to be able to just talk without fear in this day and age, without fear of being judged or repercussions, I just, it's refreshing for me just to hear it. It's like, you go. Uh, I've always loved Peter Thiel, though, always. So. Uh, look. I, I actually admire the guy, and I, I, I like that he has the opportunity to say what he says. He's brilliant. He's, I mean, as an investor, he's been brilliant. As you know, I'm not big into name-calling, so that, that's where I actually come down. I think you can make the argument on the merits without, without necessarily, but, but then we wouldn't be having this conversation <laughs> because he might not be getting it the, depends on the, the attention, person. and Does, what I worry about is actually Doesn't it depend on the person, Andrew, who you're calling the name? What do you think of that bad orange man? You, you had used some choice names for him, didn't you? I, I think you can go find the tape. I don't think so. Oh, okay. All right. Well, you're, you're very, very nice. That you know, Peter Thiel also I just went on I to think say that... that very nice. You're very objective and fair and, and good. No, well, I just think that society's got into this place where people, you know, have to use these injectives and try to either demean... I mean, should anybody be demeaning Warren Buffett in that way? You could, you could argue the merits. It's... It, it's a fabulous debate. We have it every day on this show, but I think you can do it in a way that's more respectful. G given, given how great an investor Peter Thiel is and how great an investor Warren Buffett is, I, th I, think, I think there's a way to have that conversation. In he's, toothpaste, he's, he's toothpaste playing to the crowd. Is, the toothpaste too. is out of the tube. And it, it was tongue in cheek. You could see the, the expression on his face as he was saying it. I, you know. and, and if you really, I, it, the civility is gone pretty much already, uh, Andrew. So, um, you know, and, and the other thing, I'm, depending I'm, on which I'm side you're on, both to sides back, are totally you know, I'm and they're bring awesome. it back. Oh, really? Okay. Well, that's nice. And that's Squawk Pod for today and for the week. Happy weekend, everybody. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. This podcast is produced by me, Katie Kramer, Cameron Costa, and Caroline Rahotis. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you listen. Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher. We are available for free on your favorite platform. We'll meet you right back here on Monday. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.